volume two chapter eighteen of a strange world by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain eighteen when time shall serve be thou not slack nothing could be more inviting than the aspect of maurice clissel's room at eight o'clock on the following evening when their proprietor stood on his hearth waiting the arrival of his expected guest the weather was by no means warm and the glass and silver on the friendly-looking circular table sparkled in the glow of a brightly burning fire the spotless damask the dainty arrangement of the table with its old chelsea-ware dessert dishes filled with amber-tinted jersey pears and dusky-hued filberts agreeably suggestive of good old port indicated a careful landlady and well-trained servants the dumb waiter with its reserve of glasses and cruets guaranteed that luxurious ease which is not dependent on external service mr elgood arriving on the scene as the clocks of bloomsbury struck the hour surveyed these preparations with an eye that glistened with content nay almost brightened to rapture as it wandered from the table to the fender where in a shadowy corner reposed the expected bottle of port cobweb wreathed chalk marked the savoury odour of fried fish mingled with the appetising fumes of roasting meat had greeted the visitor's nostrils as he ascended the stairs even his nice judgment had failed to divine whether the joint were beef or mutton but he opined mutton no one but a barbarian would load his table with sirloin for a tete-a-tete dinner when providence had created the welsh hills doubtless with a view to the necessities of the dinner-table glad to see you so punctual said maurice cheerily my dear clissold to be unpunctual is to insult one's host and injure one's self what can atone for the ruin of an excellent dinner you may remember what dean swift said to his cook when she had roasted the joint to rags and was fain to confess she could not undo the evil beware wench how you commit a fault which cannot be remedied a dinner spoiled is an irremediable loss the soup had been put upon the table while mr elgood thus philosophized so the two gentlemen sat down without further delay and the comedian gazed blandly upon the amber sherry and the garnet-hued claret while maurice invoked a blessing on the feast and then the business of dinner began in good earnest the joint was mutton and welsh whereby mr elgood's soul was at ease and he gave himself up to the enjoyment of the table with unaffected singleness of purpose a brace of partridges and a parmesan fondue followed the haunch and when these had been dispatched the comedian flung himself back in his chair with a sigh of repletion well my dear mr clissold he said you are a very accomplished gentleman in many ways but this i will say that i never met the man yet who was your match in giving a snug little dinner brillsby savley or whatever his name was couldn't have beat you i am glad you have enjoyed your dinner mr elgood i am of opinion that a good dinner is the best prelude to a serious conversation and i want to have a little quiet and confidential talk with you this evening upon a very serious matter behold me at your service your slave to command answered matthew whose enthusiasm was not easily to be damped i bare my bosom to your view he added with a dramatic gesture indicative of throwing open his waistcoat they were alone by this time the servant had carried away the dinner things and only the decanters and fruit dishes remained on the table you speak boldly mr elgood said maurice with sudden gravity yet perhaps if i were to ask you some questions about your past life you would draw back a little my past life although full of vicissitude has been honest answered the comedian i fear no man's scrutiny good 
then you will not be angry if i question you rather closely upon one period of your chequered career it is in the interest of your of justina that i do so proceed sir said matthew a troubled look overclouding the countenance which had just now beamed with serenity did you ever hear the name of eden mr elgood started more violently than he had done on a previous occasion at the mention of borsal end the silver dessert knife with which he was peeling a jersey pear dropped from between his fingers i see you do know that name said maurice passing from interrogation to affirmation you bore it once at borsal end the old farmhouse on the cornish moors where you took shelter in bitter winter weather just nineteen years ago last february the glow which the good things of this life had kindled in mr elgood's visage faded slowly out and left him very pale how did you know that he gasped i had it from the lips of a dying woman mrs trevenard what is mrs trevenard dead yes she died a fortnight ago and she told you all the birth of the child she entrusted to your care the old family bible she gave you from which you took the name of justina the shrewd guess stated as a fact passed uncontradicted maurice's speculative assertion had hit the truth the supposed daughter who has borne your name all these years the girl who has worked for you who now maintains you who has been faithful obedient and devoted to you has not one drop of your blood in her veins she is muriel trevenard's child you choose to make a statement said matthew elgood who had somewhat recovered his self-possession by this time which i do not feel myself called upon either to deny or admit i am willing to acknowledge that in a time of severe misfortune i took shelter upon mrs trevenard's premises that i called myself by a name that was not my own rather than expose my destitution to the world's contumely but whatever passed between mrs trevenard and myself at that period is sacred i swore to keep the secret confided to me to my dying day and it will descend with me to the tomb of my ancestors added mr elgood grandly as if for the moment at least he really believed that he had a family vault at his disposal you may consider yourself absolved of your oath said maurice mrs trevenard confided in me during the last days of her life and i pledged myself to see her grandchild righted mrs trevenard must have changed very much at the last if she expressed any interest in the fate of her grandchild returned matthew forgetting that he had refused to make any admission when she gave the child to me and my wife she resigned all concern in its future it was to fare as we fared to sink or swim with us in that wretched hour she thought the child nameless and fatherless i did my best to persuade her that she had been too hasty in her conclusion it shall be my business to prove justina's legitimacy that is to say you mean to take my daughter away from me exclaimed the comedian wrathfully little did i know what a snake in the grass i had been cherishing warming the adder in my bosom sheltering the scorpion on my domestic hearth this is what your kettledrums and snug little dinners and ports and filberts are to end in you would rob a poor old man of the staff and comfort of his declining years six pounds a week and a certainty of a rise to ten if the next part she plays is a success you are hasty mr elgood and unjust believe me if it were a question of my own happiness i would leave the dear girl you have brought up justina elgood till i had the archbishop of canterbury's permission to give her my own name but having promised to perform a certain duty i should be a scoundrel if i left it undone 
what if i tell you that i have reason to believe justina entitled to a large estate an estate of six or seven thousand a year mr elgood sank back in his chair aghast he had drunk a good many glasses of wine in the course of that comfortable little dinner and there was some slight haziness in his brain six thousand a year six pounds a week six pounds a week six thousand a year over a hundred pounds a week there was a wide margin for spending in the difference between the lesser and greater sum but of the six pounds a week while justina supposed herself his daughter he was certain would she share her annual six thousand as freely when she knew that he had no claim upon her filial piety he pondered the question for a few moments and then answered it in the affirmative generous good loving she had ever been if good fortune befell her she would not grudge the old man his share of the sunshine he had not been a bad father to her he told himself take him for all in all not over patient or considerate perhaps in those early days before he had discovered any dramatic talent in her a little prone to think of his own comfort before hers but upon the whole as fathers go not a bad kind of parent and he felt very sure she would stand by him yes he felt sure of justina but he must be on his guard against this scheming fellow clissold who had contrived to get hold of a secret that had been kept for nineteen years and doubtless meant to work it for his own advantage it would be matthew elgood's duty to countermarch him here so mr clissold he began after about five minutes reverie you are a pretty deep fellow you are in spite of your easy open-handed open-hearted free-spoken ways you think you can establish my justina's claim to a fine fortune do you and i suppose when the claim is established and the girl i have brought up from babyhood and toiled for and struggled for many a long year comes into her six thousand per annum you'll expect to get her for your wife with the six or seven thousand at her back rather a good stroke of business for you i expect nothing answered maurice gravely i love justina with all my heart as truly as ever an honest man loved a fair and noble woman but i have refrained from any expression of my heart's desire lest i should bind her by a promise while her position is thus uncertain let her win the station to which i believe she is entitled and if when it is won she cares to reward my honest affection i will take her and be proud of her but not one whit prouder than i should be to take her for my wife to-morrow knowing her to be your daughter spoken like a man and a gentleman exclaimed the comedian come mr clissold i couldn't think badly of you if i tried i'll trust you and it shall be no fault of mine if justina is not yours rich or poor she's worthy of you and you're worthy of her and i believe she has a sneaking kindness for you maurice smiled happy in a conviction which needed no support from matthew elgood's opinion that little look of justina's yesterday that tender look of greeting had been worth volumes of protestation he knew himself beloved and now tell me what your ideas are and how mrs trevenard the strangest woman and the closest that i ever met came to confide in you and how it has entered your mind that our justina has any legal right to either name or fortune i'll tell you said maurice and forthwith proceeded to relate all that he had learned at borsal a great deal of which was new to matthew elgood who had been told nothing about the parentage of the child committed to his care 
it was essential to justina's interest that her adopted father should know all since he was the only witness who could prove her identity with the child born at borsal end it seems tolerably clear that this george penwin must have been the father said mr elgood but who is to prove a marriage if a marriage took place the proof must exist somewhere and it must be for one of us to find it answered maurice the first person to apply to is miss barlow muriel's schoolmistress supposing her to be still living the only period of muriel's absence from the farm after she left school was the time she spent with miss barlow three weeks so that if any marriage took place it must have happened during that visit i have searched the registers of both churches at seacombe without result but it is not likely that george penwin would contract a secret marriage within a few miles of his father's house whatever occurred in those three weeks miss barlow must have been in some measure familiar with my first business therefore must be to find her when last heard of she was established as a teacher of music in the neighbourhood of london a directory ought to help us to her address if she is still living within the postal radius true said matthew glancing at the shelves which lined the room from floor to ceiling i suppose among all these books you have the post-office directory no strange to say it is a branch of literature i am deficient in i must wait till to-morrow to look for miss barlow's address how did it occur to you that my daughter justina and that castaway child were one and the same well i hardly know how the idea first took possession of me it was a kind of instinct the circumstances that led me to think it seemed insignificant enough when spoken of but to my mind they assumed exaggerated importance perhaps it was your look of surprise when i mentioned borsalend that first awakened my suspicions not of the actual truth but of some mysterious connection between yourself and the trevenards i certainly was astonished when you spoke of that out-of-the-way farmhouse then the name justina which i heard of as a family name at borsalend that set me thinking the fact that your daughter was said to have been born at seacombe within a few miles of that remote farmhouse the fact that her age tallied with the age of muriel's child never mind how i came by the conviction since i happily or unhappily stumbled on the truth but tell me how you fared when you left borsalend that bleak spring morning well it wasn't the most comfortable kind of departure certainly four miles on foot on a cold march morning and an infant to carry into the bargain but my poor wife and i had gone through too much to be particular about trifles and we were both of us sustained by the thought of a snug little fortune in my breast pocket for you may suppose that to us two hundred pounds odd seemed the capital of a future rothschild mrs trevenard had given us some substantial clothing into the bargain and my poor nell wore a good cloth cloak under which the baby was kept warm and snug she was stronger too my poor girl for the month's rest and plentiful food that we had enjoyed at borsal indeed though our lodging there was but a deserted hayloft i don't think either of us was ever happier than when nell sat at her needlework and i lay luxuriously reposing on a truss of hay while i read an old magazine aloud to her we were shut out from the world but we had peace and rest and plenty and i think we were pretty much like the birds of the air as to thought of the morrow in those days but now that i had mrs trevenard's savings in my breast pocket i began to take a serious view of life and throughout that walk to seacombe i was scheming and contriving till at last just as we came in sight of the town i cried out in a burst of enthusiasm yes nell i've hit it hit what asked my wife hit upon the surest way to make our fortunes my girl i answered all of a glow with the thought 
we'll take a theatre lor matt said my wife with a gasp and i can play the leading business managers had been putting other women over her head in the juliets and rosalinds and she felt it poor soul but matthew she went on growing suddenly serious we haven't seen much good come of taking theatres look at seacombe for instance seacombe isn't a case in point i answered quite put out by her narrow way of looking at things a psalm singing place like that was never likely to support the drama when i take a theatre it will be in a very different town from seacombe but remonstrated poor nell don't you think it would be breaking faith with mrs trevenard she gave us the money to set us up in some nice little business we were to start with part of the capital and keep the rest in reserve against a rainy day well isn't theatrical management a business i retorted and the only business that i am fit for do you suppose that i can blossom into a full-blown grocer or break out all at once into a skilful butcher because mrs trevenard wishes it why i shouldn't know one end of an ox from the other when his head was off and as for mrs trevenard i went on you ought to have sense enough to know that she cares precious little what becomes of us now that we've taken this unfortunate child off her hands i don't believe that matthew answered my wife she's a christian and she wouldn't like us to starve on the child's account who's going to starve i cried savagely for i felt it was in me to make money as a manager there never was an actor yet that hadn't the same fancy and many a man has brought ruin upon himself and his family by the delusion you had your own way of course said maurice i had sir first and foremost my poor little wife never obstinately opposed me in anything and secondly her foolish heart was longing for the leading business and to be a manageress and cast all the pieces and put herself in for the best parts so we went straight to the seacombe station where we found we should have to wait upwards of an hour for a train and i thought i could not make better use of my time than by buying an era and finding out what theatres were to let there were about half a dozen advertisements of this class and one of them struck me as the exact thing the theatre royal slowberry somersetshire to let for the summer season rent moderate can be worked with a small company scenery in good condition market town population twelve thousand i made a calculation on the spot demonstrating that ten per cent of those twelve thousand inhabitants allowing a wide margin for infants the aged and infirm were bound to come to the theatre nightly now a nightly audience of twelve hundred was safe to pay i found that we could get straight to slowbury by the great western and accordingly took tickets for that station third class for prudence was to be the order of the day well mr clissold i need not trouble you with details we went to slowbury and established ourselves in humble and inexpensive lodgings apartments which i felt were hardly worthy of my managerial position but prudence prevailed i became lessee of the slowbury theatre which i am fain to admit was in architectural pretensions even below the temple of the drama at seacombe i engaged my company cheap and useful my old man combined the heavy business and second low comedy my first chambermaid second i need hardly say there was none danced or sang between the pieces and acted in male attire when we ran short of gentlemen my wife and i played all the best parts nothing could have been organized upon more rigid principles of economy yet the financial result was ruin for a considerable part of the season i only paid half salaries 
for the concluding portion we became a commonwealth yet mrs trevenard's savings dribbled away and when my poor wife and i left slowberry with justina then a fine child of seven months old we had not twenty pounds left out of a capital which had appeared to my mind to be almost inexhaustible the child was christened at slowberry i suppose yes we lost no time in having the baptismal rite performed lest she should go off with croup or red gum or vaccination or any of the perils which beset the infant traveller on life's thorny road the bible which mrs trevenard had given to my wife contained in the fly-leaf the name of justina trevenard doubtless its original possessor that name caught my wife's fancy it struck me also as euphonious and aristocratic a name that would look well in the bills by and by when our daughter was old enough to make her first juvenile efforts in the profession as the child in pizarro or little william in the stranger we were fond of her already and soon grew to forget that there was no tie of kindred between us my wife indeed passionately adored this nameless orphan and was never tired of weaving romantic fancies about her future how she would turn out to be the daughter of a nobleman and we should see her by and by with a coronet on her head and owe comfort and wealth to her affection when we grew old it would be a curious thing if one of poor nell's romantic dreams were to be realized how proud that loving heart would have been but it lies under the grass and daisies in a berkshire churchyard and neither joy nor sorrow can touch it any more mr elgood checked a rising sigh and helped himself to another glass of port you fared ill i fear after your managerial experiment said maurice our life from that point was a series of struggles if the efforts of the honest man battling with adversity form a spectacle which the gods delight in a fact which i vaguely remember having been stated somewhere my career must have afforded considerable entertainment in olympus we had our brief intervals of sunshine but cloud prevailed and in the course of years my poor wife sank beneath the burden and justina and i were left to jog on together just as you saw us in the town of eversham two years ago so far as a struggler can do his duty to his daughter i believe i did mine to justina i gave her what little education i could afford and luckily she was bright enough to make the most of that little there never was such a girl for picking up knowledge clever people always seemed to take to her and she to them though for a long time we thought her stupid on the stage her talent for the profession came out all at once heaven knows she has been a good girl to me through good and evil fortune and i love her as well as if she were twenty times my daughter it would be a hard thing if any change of circumstances were to part us have no fear of that said maurice justina is too true a woman to be changed by changing fortune i do not hesitate to leave my fate in her hands you who have an older claim upon her love have even less cause for fear the little black marble clock on the mantelpiece chimed the half-hour after ten time to repair to the theatre mr flittergilt's piece ended at a quarter before eleven and at a few minutes past the hour justina appeared at the stage door ready to be escorted home maurice and mr elgood went together to the dark little side street in which the stage door of the royal albert was situated dingy and repellent of aspect after the manner of stage doors it was a starlight autumn night and that walk back to bloomsbury with justina's little hand resting on his own arm was very pleasant to maurice clissold 
they chose the quietest streets without reference to distance and the walk lasted about a quarter of an hour longer than it need have done had they gratified mr elgood's predilection for certain short-cuts by which street and drury lane but throughout that homeward walk not one whispered word of maurice's betrayed the lover and when he and justina parted at the door of her lodgings the girl thought wonderingly of that summer night in ebersham more than two years ago when james penwin told her of his love in the shadow of the old minster shall i ever have a second lover as generous and devoted she mused that was only boy and girl love i suppose yet it seemed truer and brighter than anything that will ever come my way again she had been thinking of maurice not a little of late and had decided that he did not care for her in the least End of volume two, chapter eighteen.